seat. Let me, uh, let me walk you through a few uh, welcomes and announcements this morning. First of all, it's great to see you all again. My family uh, is back from vacation, and uh, we, we had a great time uh, down there in Georgia. Uh, it would have been better if we would went to Ohio, but, but hey, Georgia has a beach, and so that's where we went. Um, but uh, anyway, it's good to see you all. Thank you all for the warm welcome back. We've, we've had a, a couple days back now, and we're, we're kind of sliding back in to... Um, Life normalcy. I don't know really what you call it, but uh, but but anyway, it's good to be home uh, back in Union City. Um, and if I ever have to go through Atlanta again, uh, I, I will I will probably pick another destination. Probably go to Ohio, right? Amen. Um, anyway, uh, so and also too, I want to I want to especially thank Dr. Finley for filling in for me last Sunday and Wednesday. Um, it's great to have Dr. Finley with us and, uh, and be able to preach. He's a great preacher, a great speaker. Um, we were able to actually watch online as we were driving. Um, I, I think we might have been somewhere around Atlanta. And uh, it, was, it was very timely when uh, Brother Finley was sharing us about, about true discipleship, about true, true faith in Christ. And so I, I want to specifically thank Dr. Finley for filling in for me and... Um, in my absence. Uh, okay, all right, a couple of announcements. Uh, this, this Saturday, we're going to be doing our mobile food pantry here at the church. Uh, we're going to be asking our, our, our specific volunteers, uh, the ones that man the tables and all that, to be here at 7. And if you're just wanting to hand out food and you just want to volunteer and help with that, you can be here at 9, okay? Um, that's, uh, that's this Saturday uh, here at the church. Uh, we're going to be hosting our mobile food pantry. Then the, the next Sunday, the, the, a week from today, we're going to be having our church potluck, our fellowship. We're going to be meeting after the service on Sunday morning. We're going to walk across the road to the Family Life Center. Um, all you're asked to do is just bring a dish. Um, the church is going to offer or provide the main course. Um, if you'll just bring a dish, uh, we'll have a good time of fellowship at the church here. Um, and uh, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a good to be intentional about getting together and fellowshipping. So we're going to do that uh, next Sunday. And then, of course, uh, in, the, in your bulletin, you'll notice the Operation Christmas Child uh, shoebox items as well. Now, one last item of interest that's not in your bulletin is, uh, is the deacon selection. We're in, we're in the season of deacon nomination and selection. Um, and since, uh, since some of you, many of you know how the selection process works, but some of you do not. You're new. And, uh, and so basically in the mail, you'll receive a list of the, of the men of the church that are, uh, that are available to serve as deacons. And you're going to be asked to select four names from that list. Bring it back to the church. There's a box out here in the foyer. It's a big black box. You can just drop your ballot in that. Um, and then a, a selection team, a, a deacon selection team made up of deacons, will get those ballots. They'll, they'll go through them. They'll work through them. And then they will go to those men who have been chosen by the body and, uh, and begin the assessment process. And if, uh, if, if, the, if the Spirit works through all that and confirms these men, um, then they will be chosen or nominated as deacons. 
And so that's kind of how the process works. And I know that's some, you know, it's not unusual for the Baptist world, but, but some of us may not know exactly what we're looking at when we get a letter in the mail that has deacon selection on there, okay? Um, and, and one notice of, of, of point two is it's four, not two. There was a, on, on, the, on the mailer it was said two, but we want you to select four, okay? That's, that's, uh, that's the last announcement that I have. Um, I'm excited to be here. I'm excited about the, the Lord's, the worship this morning. Um, I'm excited about our guests that are here with us this morning, um, especially Brother Brad and Miss Tracy over here. Uh, Brad's a great friend of mine in, uh, in ministry and just personally, and, um, and so glad you're here to worship with us. Uh, he, he, um, and I'll, I'll leave college football out of it, but if, uh, if you want to uh, ask him about his college football team, you do that, okay? Uh, you've asked me. I'm just, now it's time to probably ask him, and then you'll understand as it all comes out in the wash. Amen, brother. Amen. Yeah, we, we pick at each other. Uh, Brad's, Brad, Brad, I, I, you're from Michigan, I think. Aren't you, weren't you born there? That's, that's all I need to say, okay? That's all I need to say. Uh, anyway, it's great to have you all with us and worshiping. Brad's currently on sabbatical, and uh, many of you know him, and uh, he's just enjoying a season of, of refreshing. So uh, he's worth wishes. And, and, and all of our guests that are with us this morning, we're, we're thankful that you're here. I'd like to pray for us, pray over our service anyway. And so if you'll join me in prayer, if you'll bow your heads, I will take us to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful this morning as we assemble, as your people. Father, as your saints, your sons and daughters, uh, God, you have called us from eternity past to, to be here this morning to worship you. And Father, I just pray that from every note that is played, from every word of scripture that is read, for every dollar that is given, God, that you are glorified by our efforts, by our faith, by our worship. God, as, as we come together collectively as one voice, with our brothers and sisters around the world even, uh, Father, this is your day. It's the Lord's day, a day of worship and rest. Uh, Father, may you be magnified throughout the world on this day. May the, may the assembling of your saints be pleasing in your sight. May all that we say and do be of honor to you. Father, may the kingdom be advanced on this day as souls are saved, as lives are changed, and as the gospel is preached. Father, I, I am thankful for the ministry of this church. I'm, 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 I'm especially thankful for being called to be the pastor here. Father, for, to, to, to be the, the shepherd that leads this flock, um, Father, through this world. And God, what a privilege to be able to serve you. Lord, from, from mobile pantries to fellowships to whatever it is that our hands find to do. Father, may we do it with all of our might and to your glory. Father, I'm thankful for each and every one that is part of this church and part of the ministry. And I'm thankful to live in such a community as ours that has shared uh, unity, shared mentality, shared spirit, Father, that we can advance the kingdom here in Union City and Obion County. God, as we consecrate this service to you, Father, may it be pleasing in your sight, and may all that we say and do be of an honor to you. And we pray this in Christ's name, and amen. We are so glad that Brother Ben and his family is back with us, and had a great time vacation. Let's continue to worship by singing together, I Stand Amazed in the Presence, hymn 237. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the
Amen. From the Word of God this morning, I'd, I'd invite you to read with me 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. This is a passage from Paul to the Thessalonian Christians about standing fast. Um, it's a great word. It's a great reminder for us as Christians, especially in a world of compromise and, and, uh, and shifting ideologies, uh, that, uh, that we are firmly rooted, that we can stand fast in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's read this together collectively. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. It says this, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast, And hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen, church. Beautiful passage of scripture as the word of God is read in the house of God this morning. Amen. Our offertory hymn is a hymn that speaks about eternal life. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the King. Let's stand together. It's hymn 599. This is our offertory hymn. May we stand. to have Miss Linda back behind me and the piano and the, and the organ. I know it's been quite a journey to get there, but it's good to see you back over there again. Amen. Praise the Lord for a successful surgery and recovery, and, and, and I'm sure as that's ongoing, 
we'll continue to pray for Miss Linda. Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. It's actually going to be the destination for the next several weeks, honestly. Um, we're, going to be, we're going to be going through the book of 1 John um, as, a, uh, as a sermon series, maybe expository or whatever you want to call it. But we're going to start at the beginning and we're going to work through the book addressing the title, How Do I Know I Am Saved? This is part one. Uh, it's going to deal with mainly the introduction, verses, verses one through four. Uh, of, of how do I know I'm saved? Now, this question may be rhetorical for some of you. Um, it, it, it may be rhetorical for all of you. I don't know. Uh, but, but there's more to the uh, question than just a simple uh, yes or no answer. Um, and so I, I, I really wanted to kind of flesh this book out and just glean the value of it um, as it's short, but it's full of great information as it pertains to life and godliness. Uh, now, I, I, this, the premise of this, the Spirit laid this on my heart, just a little introduction to this book. Uh, the Spirit laid this on my heart because I meet a lot of people in ministry who question, who doubt, who have reasonable concerns about their salvation. Um, it's, it's true that, 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 that the Baptist denomination, at least in our uh, doctrinal stance, is one of the few that actually believes or teaches or preaches or holds firm to the, to the quality of eternal security of the believer, the eternity, eternal security of salvation. That, uh, to, to, I hate reducing it to a cliche, but the once saved, always saved motto. Now, I meet a lot of people, and I know others in the ministry do as well. I meet, I meet a lot of people who, are, who, are, who, who don't have assurance. They, they question or they wonder or they doubt their faith in Christ. They, at least in so much that, that if they were to die, that they would, they would wonder. They have some questions or doubts about where they would spend eternity. And so 1 John is a great book on assessing that situation. It's a great, question. It's a, it's a great book in answering the question, how do I know that I am saved? Um, this series, if you will, is going to go through, uh, if you will, an outline of answering that question, right? We're, we're going to look today at, at just the fact that Jesus lived, that that was his, that that's just because he lived, because of his life, we have the benefit uh, of knowing that that's where salvation starts. Um, and that's part one. That's going to be the introduction to, to, to John's first epistle to who he identified as his dear children. Now, I want to read our text first, and then I want to kind of work through the book and kind of just give you an outline of what's going to come in the, in the, in the, in the following weeks. So let's stand together and let's read 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. John begins his epistle by saying this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, And our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen, and bear witness, and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this word. Thank you for this text. 
Father, as, as, as we have now read it in the assembling of your people, Father, bless it, multiply it, break it for our spiritual nourishment. Uh, Father, enlighten this word for us this morning so that we can be drawn closer to you uh, through it. Bless it in the reading of your people. We pray this now in Christ's name and amen. All right, go ahead and have a seat. Now, if I were to ask you a simple question, uh, rhetorically now, I don't want you to answer it out loud, but if you want to, you can. Are you saved? Answer that question. I mean, you, and it, it, it requires an answer. I mean, I, I'm not asking you to do it out loud, but it does require an answer. Are you saved? What would you say to that, that question? What if I were to ask you this morning, how do you know? That's another question. Altogether. It's another question in, in its, in its seeming simplicity, but seems to be the one where everybody gets hung up on. Well, yeah, I know I'm saved. But then they don't know how they are saved. They don't know why they are saved. They don't know from what they are saved. They just know that they're saved. Now, I have to also add another little addition to this, that this is where the idea, if we will, or the infiltration of easy believism comes into doctrine and theology as well. Sometimes we say, well, I was baptized when I was seven, and I've attended my, a church my entire life, and, and, and there's no fruits of faith. There's just this evidence that I've been a part of this church, and so therefore I'm saved. It's this bow your head, say a prayer, etc., etc., and I'm saved. The problem with that is John would tell us this morning that that's not the entirety of one's faith, that one should know how they are saved or at least have assurance that they are. Because both questions are equally important. On the one hand, it's good to answer the question in the affirmative that you are saved. But on the other hand, it's even better to have assurance that you are indeed saved, that you have no doubt of your eternal salvation, that you are eternally secured in Christ as a son and daughter of God. Maybe you sit here today and you aren't sure whether you have eternal salvation. Maybe you think you are, but you don't know for sure. You don't have that assurance. So today we're going to start this series, How Do I Know I'm Saved? We're going to walk through this issue using John's first letter about eternal security of the believer. Now, salvation as John's going to outline it, it's going to look like this. And I've got it. Uh, Landon did a great job of, of putting this up here. Landon, can you put it on this? There it is right there. So, so John, the apostle, did a great job of breaking down the facets of, of answering the latter question. How do I know I'm saved? Well, he broke, the, the first sermon we're going to look at today is, is this one. Jesus lived. That's what we just read from 1 John 1, 1 through 4. The fact that Jesus existed, and we're going to walk through this more in just a second. And then he pivots into the next passage about how he came, Jesus came, so that we can have fellowship with him. And not just with him, but with each other. All of that stems from salvation. In in chapter 2, he gives us a test. It's called the salvation test. And how do you know you are saved? And it's assessment. Right? And then he goes into this fourth part. Because we love Christ, we cannot love the world. Jesus even reiterates that. If 
love of the world is enmity with Christ. John fleshes that out in the middle part of his second chapter. And then in the fifth part, we're going to look at how there's going to be a whole effort, a whole landslide of information and, and, and contradiction and all these other things from people who are going to try to convince us otherwise. That Jesus didn't live, that he didn't come to, have, to give us fellowship, that, he didn't, that it's okay to love the world and love Christ at the same time, and that they're going to try to convince us otherwise. But John's going to say love is the ultimate confirmation of salvation. We're going to work through that one as well. Love of God toward us, love of, of us toward others, love that, has, that separates us apart from the rest of the world, and love that is expressed through us. All of those are, 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 are elements, the litmus test, if you will, of salvation, of true, genuine, eternal security. Does God love you? Of course. Do you love others? Is your love what sets you apart from the rest of the world? And is that love expressed through you? Those are all elements. Those are wonderful questions. And identifying how you know you are saved. And then lastly, we're going to get into this part of security, eternal, certainty, security of the believer, and then having confidence in that security. That's what it's going to look like over the next several weeks. I asked Landon to put that up there because it's a great visual to be able to kind of, okay, so what? Jesus lived. Well, it's important when you want to affirm the rest of it. Because we're going to be looking at this piece by piece. Okay? First John has a letter written about eternal security. It's, it's, it's about resting judiciously in the grace of God and having hope that you are a child of his. So many people walk through this world without that hope. They don't have this, this, this rest in their salvation, that they are secure, that they're a child of God, and that nothing will separate them from God. 1 John walks us as readers through everything that is necessary for salvation. So on the one hand, this book is evangelical. It's designed to not just save your soul, but to equip you so that you know how to go out to others and help them find eternal security as well. For us who have eternal hope in Christ already, it is a refresher on how we can lead others to Christ if you will, an outline of how to do that. So let's look beginning in chapter one. I'm taking my jacket off. It's hot in here, isn't it? Whoo. That just cut the sermon. I'm, about, I'm laying it down. Not throwing it to Richard this time. Like as happened last time in another life to another person. Jesus lived. That's what John says in the first four verses, that he was actually a real person. Now, on its face, all of us look at that and say, duh, we're not stupid. We know that Jesus was a real person, and that's great. If you have that assurance, wonderful, but there are people out there who don't. They will look at you, and they will call you crazy for believing in Jesus. Because there's some out there, first point, that believe or that don't believe that Jesus was actually even real, that he was even historical, that Jesus was an historical person. And John starts here because this is invariably the very first place in any given conversation about salvation that we must come in discussing salvation is the person of Christ. 
Luke said in Acts 4.12, or Peter rather, saying to the Jewish leaders, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby men must be saved. It is Jesus Christ and him alone. Jesus said in John 10 verse 7, I am the door. If you want to go into the pasture, you've got to go through me. And of course, John or Jesus classically said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, regardless of what one makes of it, salvation is a gift of God, not of works. It's not something you or I merit. It's not something you or I earn. It's not something that you and I can reproduce. It is not something that efforts or works or merits can earn. It is a gift of God. Mankind has tried to replicate this process. Mankind is currently trying to do that now with all of its ideologies and all of its, all of its different structures. All right? we, have, we have political structures. We have economic structures. We have all of these different things that are being pushed out there that really are nothing more than alternative religions designed to get your allegiance. That's all they are. They have methods of salvation. They have methods of redemption. They have methods of piety. They have all of these things that are really designed to replicate salvation in Christ. In the end, it is nothing more than a work of man. Because it is not a work of man, it is not something that you or I can change based on anything we think or think of it concerning it. Because salvation belongs to the Lord alone, he gets to decide how it works. Amen? It is his gift to us, not the other way around. I think what happens a lot of times in our modern ecclesiology is we want to come to Christ and we want to say, uh, mm, hold up a little bit, hold on a second. There's, 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 there's other ways, there's other ideas, there's other forms of knowledge, there's other forms of wisdom, there's other merits to life other than just Christ. But John says, we have Christ, the son of the living God. To which some say he never existed. That he was nothing more than a fairy tale made up by people who are afraid of the dark. They say he's a footnote in the imagination of weak-minded people. Further, they all even go on record to say that there is no historical record of Jesus outside of Scripture. Is this true? You ever stop to consider? Have you ever done the research? You ever looked into this? Because if you go out into the world, you're going to hear it. You better be, be prepared for questions like that, or at least accusations. Because if they're right, we have a serious problem this morning. If Jesus never existed to begin with, then there is no salvation. Now, for the record, this claim wasn't really a thing in human history until more modern times when the evolution of science and technology and all of these other forms of salvation appeared to us did anybody ever question whether Jesus was actually real we have this modern mindset this modern man if you will that thinks that they can eliminate Jesus from the from the from the equation all the way around and thus eliminate salvation now, I've got a whole list of people here that I did the research on. Thallus, Tacitus, Phlegion, Josephus. There's a whole list of people, extra-biblical people who wrote about the life of Christ. In fact, 
Some of them even wrote about the events that occurred during his crucifixion, about darkness filling the earth, about the rock shaking, about Jerusalem being shaken apart. These were people who were critics of the Christian faith. Yet they wrote about the historic accuracy of Christ. The point is that only a fool would reject that Christ lived. And that anyone who makes such a claim is being disingenuous and probably shouldn't be taken seriously to begin with. The fact is Jesus lived. That's a fact. That's a historically rooted fact that some deny. Now, others will say that he just wasn't the son of God. Yeah, they'll admit that he was the Christ or that that he was at least a person, but that he was not the Christ, the son of God, if you will, the Muslims uh, claiming that Jesus was not the last prophet of Allah or God, that he was the predecessor to the real last prophet, which is Muhammad. He wasn't the son of God. That was Muhammad. There are others out there who say the same thing. And Jesus once asked the disciples in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, who do men say that I am? It's a question that he designed, if you will, to set up his next question. Who do you say that I am? Great. It's wonderful that people are out there saying that you're Elijah and that you're Moses and that all these others say, well, what well, do you say that I am? Because that's the question that every one of us will answer in judgment one day. Who do you say that I am? And that's the question upon which all of salvation hinges. And the question does demand an answer. And in fact, it screams in our faces in such a way that it cannot be ignored. And if we know what's good for us, it must not be ignored. But one day, an answer will be required of us. To this point, though, some say that Jesus was just a good teacher. Some say that he was a devil. In fact, he was the prince of demons even. Some say that he was a good person, nothing more, nothing less. He was just a a good person who lived and did meritorious things and that he died and that was that. Some say he's a crutch for those who cannot think in rational or critical ways. Peter answered Jesus' question by saying, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's a, by the way, that is a mouthful of an answer. If we stopped and we camped out on that, phrase that answer for a second we could preach for weeks on it you are the christ the fulfillment of the prophecies the son of the god that is alive and active among his people peter was right he was commended by his lord and by the way no other answer will suffice you're not going to get to heaven and be able to say, or at least allow access into glory, into paradise, into God's abode by saying, well, Jesus, you were a good teacher. I appreciate everything that you said. No, only that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, in the affirmative, will suffice. I mean, to claim that Jesus was a good teacher, but to reject his teachings is lunacy. Stop for a second and appreciate that. To say that Jesus was a good teacher, but then reject his teachings is is asinine. Doesn't even make any sense. To claim that he was a devil that cast out devils also makes no sense. To claim that he was just a person and nothing more is to deny the powerful testimony of his resurrection. An event that even the skeptics can't refute. 
To claim that he is little more than a crutch for those who cannot think for themselves is an excuse made by those delusional types who think they are in control of their own destiny. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, just as Peter said. No more, no less. Now, John, to his point here, says otherwise, doesn't he? John would take issue with the former points. John, the young apostle, who likely first met Jesus when he was maybe early 20s, maybe younger, makes it a point to begin the entire thesis of salvation with the fact that Jesus was from the beginning. Everybody remember how John 1.1 starts? The gospel, the biography of Jesus. Remember how John 1 starts? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He starts his epistle the exact same way. He wanted us to know that Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, was from eternity past. That he was present on day one. And that he was in the flesh as the propitiation of salvation. John says, I have heard his voice. My eyes have beheld his glory. We are witnesses to his work and ministry. I have felt his nail-scarred hand. I have laid my, sh- my head upon his shoulder. I have embraced his loving arms. I have lived with him for three years. I have seen him, heard him, touched him, and bear witness to everything he both did and taught. In essence, John is saying, I'm an eyewitness. And let me tell you, dear children, he calls them in this book, it was amazing. What a wonderful privilege to have walked with Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. There's no one else in the world like him who has ever been or who will ever be. John says, The things that I tell you today are true, they are accurate, and they are settled. Jesus Christ was the Word from the beginning. He was the Christ. He was the Son of the living God. Now, the question that I had when I was just thinking out loud with this text is, why does John start here? For what purpose is he making this claim? I mean, what's in it for us this morning? You and I sit here this morning on on whatever day it is. What what is today? Sunday, the 23rd of July. When you're on vacation, you, you forget about days. And got back, and I had to remind myself, it's Thursday, it's Friday, it's Saturday, it's Sunday. July the 23rd, 2023. What's in this for us? For anyone who considers Christ? Well, it's just this. Because Jesus came, because he lived, because he died, because he rose again, those who come to him as the Christ can find salvation, hope, and victory. That's the point. By the way, those three things are the very things that everybody in the world is looking for. We have this unique privilege of being able to share this Christ with others. Not only did Jesus live, to the second point here John makes, is that Jesus came to give life. Verse 2, the life was manifested. Life was manifested. So many people think that life today is about wealth 
and power and influence and, and applause and all of these other things. John says the life was manifested and his name was Christ. John wanted his readers and by extension you and I this morning to know that Jesus came and lived the life and he did so for a very good reason. So that we may live. And this is the distinct Christian message. That Jesus came to give life and to give it more abundantly. This life, the life that Jesus offers, that, can't, that, that doesn't have anything to do with money. It doesn't have anything to do with personality. It doesn't have anything to do with, with, with power or anything. All it does is it includes victory over hell, over death, over sin, over the flesh, and over this world. That's what this life gives. It's not a prosperity gospel. It's it's not this health and wealth and prosperity. It's not about you even. It's about Christ. And when we get to that point, when we come to the Christ and we put everything else aside, then we have life. Jesus paradoxically even saying, if you want to have life, you must give up life. You must die. That's the distinct distinct Christian message. It's been lost, if you will, on a a modern world that if you want to have life, then you can bring your old life and you can bring it to Christ and you can walk away with both. That's not how it works. That's not how salvation is. And if we think that, we haven't come to Christ. We've walked right by him. And we have no victory over hell or death or sin or the flesh or even the world. Thus, everything about those things will scare us to death. No hope, no promise, no victory. Every news headline will be about the end of the world. It'll be about your impending doom and it'll shake you to your very core. But when you are eternally secured in Christ, none of that matters. Because you have life. You see, the Father in heaven had this plan from the foundations of the world that Jesus would come to the earth as the Lamb of God, that he would die a substitutionary death on the cross for sinners and grant them salvation in exchange. That is the theme of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, it is God's plan, it is God's redemption that Christ was willing. And as he said in John chapter 10, verse 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. What's he saying to you there, believer? What's he telling you? That even when you lay down in death, that if you lay down in death in Christ, that you will be raised to victory and new life. That is the beauty of the gospel, that in his life, we gain life. It's a life for a life. But we live only because he lives. Additionally, John says, Jesus came to give abundant life. Jesus even said this himself. Jesus, I I came to give you life and to give it to you more abundantly. That's an adverb. That, 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 that is attached to the giving element of life. 
Jesus didn't do all of this, in other words, just so you could barely get by. That's not how it works. Jesus didn't do all of this just for us to have something to do on Sunday morning. It's not how it works. Jesus did all of this so that we could have life and have it more abundantly. You see, humans, we have a nasty way of measuring life in very conditional ways. What does that mean? Well, we, we, we measure life in, in old life or young life or healthy life or sick life or happy life or sad life. And we measure it all by those metrics. It's like, well, I'm just, my life is just, just bleh. I hate my life. Yet we have everything in the world at our fingertips and we're miserable. In fact, the very, the very the, I mean, the, the most common things that I see in my ministry whether it's counseling or otherwise, are anxiety and depression, even among believers. Because everybody measures their lives in conditional ways. We see it all through the prism of these conditions. The better the conditions, the better the life. Or we think. The same is true in the reverse as well. The worse the conditions, the worse quality of life. And all of this is based on the circumstances too, by the way. Don't, get, don't, don't miss this because it's the circumstances that we base it all on. The crazy thing about circumstances is that they change all the time. This week or last week, I was sitting on a beach. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Loved every second of it. And though I love my house at 1753 Pleasant Valley Road, I love it all. I don't have a beach there. But my life is not based on whether I'm sitting on a beach or sitting in my living room. My life is not based on the preconditions that if I have those things, that I'm somehow happy. And you see, that's the problem, is that everybody is trying to be happy. Happiness is based on the conditions. They're based on circumstances. And when your circumstances change, so does your level of happiness. And for this reason, the abundant life in Christ does not have a goal, hear me, believer, of happiness. God is not concerned about whether you are happy, He's not. He came to give you life and abundantly. And so therefore, the goal of the gospel is joy, not happiness. Because God does not measure life in such ways. He, his, his idea of abundant life, his idea of, 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 of measuring life is really just unconditional. It's two ways. You either have eternal life or you have eternal death. Those who are in Christ have abundant life. Those who do not have eternal death. So for this reason, Christians are not barely getting by. And the quality of our lives are not dependent upon our external circumstances, but our inward hope. Because Jesus lived, because he died, because he rose again, you and I have hope. And in that hope is joy. Let me, let me read to you real quick 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Concerning, 
this issue. Paul says this in verse 7, chapter 4. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. For we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body of the always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Taking my tie off. Paul's got me upset. Verse 16, therefore, brethren, therefore, sisters, we do not lose heart. When's the last time you told yourself that? When's the last time you you lost heart in something that was conditional? Paul concludes by saying, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. You see, there's Paul's musings as he works out this internal, external paradigm. It's about joy. It's about hope. It's about having this inward person that is convinced, that is assured, that is, that is confirmed in Christ. You see, this is, this is warrior language. This is not defeatist language, okay? You won't hear a Christian saying this, walking around, wringing their hands, worried about everything that's going on in the world. You won't hear it, Because they don't have instability. They have stability. This isn't some kind of wimpy, defeated language that has become synonymous with modern Christianity. This is abundant life language. Christians should embrace and engage because Christ lived. And then thirdly, because I'm going to fall apart right here. I mean, I'm, I'm down to a shirt and, uh, G, anyway, because Jesus lived, we have joy. Life in Christ produces joy. I mean, there, there's no other way around it. If you have life in Christ and it is abundant, There's no way around it. Verse 4, And these things we write to you that your joy may be full. I love that verse, by the way. Because if without that verse, then we just have this preface that, yeah, Jesus alive. Hey, I witnessed it. I saw it. I heard it. Man, I'm, I'm bearing witness to this, and I want you to know this. But I don't want you to just know it so you can barely get by. I want you to know it so that your joy may be full. In other words, John's saying, because Jesus lived, you can have hope. Because had the grave been able to contain him, folks, we'd be toast. If death would have been able to hold him, there would be no hope. But because they didn't, 
we have good news. That's what gospel means, amen? That's what it's translated as. For the skeptic, this means that Jesus is the answer. For the lost, this means that Jesus is your Savior. For the doubting believer, this is, this is their confidence. And for the joyful saint, this is your reminder. Those who live in life, uh, or at least a life in Christ, they have joy. Joy is the product of living in the life and the victory of Jesus. Not in your next job promotion, not in your next doctor's report. Abundant life is about living in hope and the victory of Christ. I mean, how else, what else could be the product? How else could, is one supposed to live if they know that Christ overcame everything for them, every power and principality and, and diagnosis and even hell and death? How is one supposed to live? I I oftentimes entertain this for myself. The idea of dying scares me. I'm just going to be honest. The idea of it, of breathing my last breath, those kinds of things, of physically dying, of leaving Mandy and the kids, those kinds of things, that idea scares me. But death does not scare me. In fact, I I I can walk up to the threshold of it knowing that I have victory in Christ, that just as he overcame that grave, so too will I. That's my hope. And so I don't stand around on every street corner worrying about who's going to take it from me. I worry more about living it abundantly for his sake than I do about others taking it from me. I think if we had Christians that were more concerned about how they lived an abundant life versus how they were going to die a graceful death, a whole lot more would get done in the gospel kingdom. This doesn't mean that we have to be thrilled with suffering or pain. It just means that we have outsourced the consequences of it to the one who has already overcome it. Those are entirely different things. One is living in Christ while the other is living in our circumstances. Hear me this morning. If joy, and this is John speaking, not me. If joy is absent from the believer's life, something is wrong. Something is seriously wrong if joy is missing. At a minimum, the culprit is likely a short-sighted faith. If you are of the faith and there's joy absent, then the consequences are that your joy is probably because of a short-sighted faith. Because what a short-sighted faith will cause you to do is avert your eyes away from Christ and put them on your circumstances, on the waves under your feet, on the clouds over your head, or the enemies at your door. This kind of faith will fail you because it's not rooted in the victory of Jesus. If you're a believer this morning and you have no joy, The way you get your joy back is by firmly setting your eyes on Christ, on his life, on his death, and his resurrection. And knowing that one way or the other, it's going to be okay. Amen? I tell myself that all the time. When I'm staring down humanity and problems and just all kinds of... I tell myself all the time, in the resurrection of Christ... It's all going to be okay. 
A life of joy multiplies in others. That's what John says here. That your joy may be full. Once joy is established inwardly, it spreads to others. Here, joyful believers make for a joyful congregation. Amen. I love being here at First Baptist Church. I love the fact that we're all joyful, that we have hope, that despite what is all going on here, that we have hope in Christ. We have a joyful congregation. A joyful congregation is one that worships and fellowship and grows, not on the life and the, 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 the back of the pastor, but on the life of Jesus Christ. It's a body that thrives, disciples, and, and wants others to know about the abundant life too. It's one that hums with harmony and biblical precision. It's a body that centers everything on the life of Jesus. And then lastly, life in Christ brings fulfillment. Notice he uses the word full. I appreciate y'all tearing with me, by the way. I know it's warm in here and I know it's going long, but this last point is an important one. It's all designed to satisfy. It's all designed so that you, believer, will look at Christ and look at all of the other things that the world has to offer and conclude that only Christ satisfies. And all this other stuff is nice, it's wonderful, and it gives you comfortability and all of those things, but it does not fulfill. John doesn't want us to take this introduction as a passing glance of Jesus. He wants to establish a fullness that is overflowing in what's going to follow in the rest of his epistle. John says, we have Christ. I have seen this Christ. I have heard this Christ. I have found fulfillment in this Christ. I have salvation and hope and security in this Christ. And so he writes this letter to invite all of us to have that same fellowship that he had with Jesus. I can't imagine personally what it was like for John to have walked with Jesus and had known Jesus in such a capacity. But I do know the fulfillment of the abundant life that I have had with walking with Christ since. Nothing else compares. I agree with John here. I have fellowship with Christ and I want that, with, I want that for others as well because it's a fulfilling life. So as you sit here this morning, we have Christ. Who do you say that he is? Are you saved? How do you know? John would say that salvation comes through Christ, the son of the living God, through his life, his death, and resurrection. That there's joy that can be found if you come to Christ. So as this sermon ends and the invitation is about to open, that's the words of John. How do I know that I'm saved? Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you this morning for this word from our brother John. Are the words of confirmation, worship, Father, I thank you for the testimony of John as he writes these things with all assurance that he can pass on that same assurance to us, believers that have lived many years after him, 
but that can have the same assurance. Father, I thank you for this word this morning. Father, now do with it what you may please, what's pleasing to you, what you will to be done to it, Father. Use it for your glory and for the benefit of your people. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him. Father, Son.